Let's once again go to our Father in prayer and pray for our concerns and our cares about this world. Father God, we, um, we see so much tragedy in the world right now, and we ask uh, for your provision. Uh, we pray for the nation of Afghanistan uh, and their grappling with the aftermath of this earthquake. We pray, Father, um, out of compassion that uh, humanitarian aid would be able to get in there, uh, that uh, those aid organizations uh, would be able to serve the people of Afghanistan. We pray in particular for uh, those Christian uh, aid organizations which might be able to bring far more than uh, merely physical assistance, but also would be able to bring the gospel of hope and peace. We pray somehow, Father, that in your uh, providence that this would uh, bring about an end uh, of the, the reign of the Taliban. Um, we pray, Father, for the good news of Jesus to, to take even the most hardened leaders of that organization and bring them uh, to their knees in worship of Esau, Jesus, the Messiah. Father, we pray over the conflict in Israel and Palestine and uh, a world that tells us uh, we, we support this side or we support that side, uh, but tune our hearts, Father, to your people, the people of Hamashiach, the Messiah Jesus, those Christians in Gaza, those Christians in the West Bank, those Christians in Israel who are caught in a conflict that is not their own because they are not of this world. We pray, Father, that they would remain strong, that they would be unified in their love for one another, that their unity would go beyond language and ethnic and political divisions, but they would see in each other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and may their witness in the midst of this tragedy lead to a gospel movement in that land. We stand with our people, Father, and our people are called by the name of Christ. Father, as we prepare to hear about the promised coming of that Messiah, would you be with our brother uh, Caleb, that he might preach faithfully from your word, that you would give him only what is true to speak. May we be convicted by truth and so moved to live for you and to live in light of what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. morning. So uh, as, as some of you may or may not know, I am a huge fan of, of epic fantasy literature. Um, for a lot of you, that's probably no surprise at all. We had our, our men's retreat, uh, what, last weekend? Two weekends ago? I was in Colorado. Um, 
but, but there, you know, I know we had a few conversations about, about some different uh, fantasy novels, and, you know, I, for me, there's just so much to love about them. There's, there's bold heroes, exciting adventures, wicked villains, and there's a tool used in, in a lot of literature, but, but especially in, um, in many epic fantasy series, and that's, that's foreshadowing, used in different ways, but, um, but let's, let's talk about them. So, so one way that it's used in a story is, uh, well, well, so foreshadowing in general is where the author hints at what is to come in a story. Um, in some cases, this is implicit. It's just within the story uh, for us as, as readers to pick out and enjoy. It's never spoken aloud, just kind of hinted at. Um, Lord of the Rings is a masterwork of fantasy and, and uses foreshadowing throughout. Um, there's, there's a moment where Frodo, as the, the main hero of the series, you could argue, I don't want to start debates here, <laughs> but, but Frodo tells Gandalf, the, this mentor-type character, that he wishes that Bilbo, the old hero, had killed Gollum when he had the chance. Gollum is this kind of villain um, that, that's following throughout the story. He tells Gandalf that he thinks that Gollum deserved death. And Gandalf responds, deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. And, and this tickles something at the back of our minds as readers. For even the very wise cannot see all ends. And it makes you kind of wonder what will be seen at all ends. And so we look, we, we keep our eyes on, on Gollum throughout the story, and every so often wonder to ourselves what might be hinted at here. Now, other forms of foreshadowing occur within this story, and this is more specific to the fantasy genre. It's more explicit and given in the form of a, of a prophecy. And so if we look at Lord of the Rings again for this example, there's a poem given to a character. It says, From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring, renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. Now in the story, we get to kind of puzzle alongside these characters. We, we hear this poem and we see its significance, but so does our protagonist. And so we, sort of alongside them, keep a lookout. Now what sets a work of literature like, like Lord of the Rings and many other classics apart and lets them live on so long as, as masterworks of this craft are defined in, in these moments, in these bits of foreshadowing. How satisfying is this conclusion to the puzzle that we're given? Were we given so much information that we already know the answer? Or were we not given enough information to come to the right conclusion from the beginning? Do we get that, that satisfying feeling at the end where we see the answer and go, you knew all along? What is it about these riddles that fascinates us so and grabs our attention so tightly? 
So let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 today. We're going to, to read to the end of chapter 53. Now, if you, if you need a Bible, there should be one under a chair near you. Uh, if not, we have, we have a bunch of them in the back where you can always use your phone. You have time. Uh, I'll talk for a minute as you bring it up. So we've had a few messages out of Isaiah by now, um, but they've been kind of spread out over several months. So if you don't remember, I'll give a brief bit of context. So Isaiah is a prophet in the ancient nation of Israel. He's giving a prophecy to the nation. Um, it's, it's one of the larger prophecies that we see in the Bible. The nation of Israel has been divided for some time, has been faltering and following God's commands. Her kings aren't doing much to help, and it's clear that the nation is weakening. The shadows of its more powerful neighbors are looming, like Egypt and Assyria. Israel was never strong on its own. They weren't protected on both sides by oceans like the U.S. is, surrounded by allies. They didn't have a lot of land, plentiful resources. They didn't have the the biggest, baddest military of their time. They didn't really have a reason to survive other than God's protection. So Isaiah wrote this prophecy. It was written around 740 B.C., And that timing is really important, so I'll repeat it. 740 B.C., before Christ. That notation is really key. So let's read together. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that Of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had, not done, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, some of you may read this and already have some spoilers about the subject of today's message, about a suggested fulfillment of this prophecy. But if you would, if we can, let's hold off on that. Here, let's just look at, at what we have in front of us. We have Isaiah telling us some message, but really that message is from God. God is honoring Isaiah Israel and us into a, with, a, with a glimpse into his plan. He didn't have to do this, but it's for his glory and our amazement that he does this. It highlights an idea of history that I, that I really love um, and that I think is best summarized. The, the best quote I've heard to summarize it is by uh, G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. He says, I had always believed that the world involved magic. Now I thought that perhaps it involved a magician. And this pointed a profound emotion, always present and subconscious, that this world of ours has some purpose. If there is a purpose, there is a person. I had always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, there is a storyteller. So God here gives us a, a glimpse into the plot of his work. He does this in a puzzling way, in a way that we see mirrored now by many authors. <clears throat> he gives us enough information <clears throat> so that we can get a picture of what's to come, but not so much information that we can see the answer, that we can guess the answer before seeing it. You see, this, this was an issue for the ancient Jewish people. Many prophecies were written in the Old Testament up until about 400 B.C., and then nothing. Silence for 400 years. Well, silence from God, anyway. The Jewish religion it, it kept evolving, kept making more rules and regulations and until it became what we read about in the New Testament. And during that time, there was a lot of consideration about what was God hinting at in these visions given to Isaiah, many others given to various other prophets out of the Old Testament. Most of, of the Jewish leaders and theologians were waiting for a king to come, come triumphant and defeat all of the enemies of God's people. Of course they did. Even today, when we think of a, a Messiah character in movies, we think of Neo from The Matrix or Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. We think of 
a righteous ascendant hero who leads armies into battles. And so many Jewish leaders thought the same. It's what we always expect. It's what we always look for. They looked at verses like, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. They let it read to them what they wanted, a conquering king. They let themselves see what they wanted out of the Bible. And we still do this today. We go to the Bible with an answer and look for the question. Chris has been preaching out of of Genesis, and it's really easy, especially in these first few chapters of Genesis, to come in with an expectation and let the words of the Bible confirm what we think we already know, especially something like Genesis, where many of us have heard it over and over again. Any of you that have started a Bible reading plan typically at least make it through Genesis, maybe through Exodus. (laughs) And there's a plague of churches today that tell people, tell us what we want to hear. They say that God doesn't hurt those who follow him, or it is not God's will to hurt those that follow him. The semantics are usually very important there. Um, They'll say God grants health and wealth to all of those that follow him, that God is with our nation. I've heard some say that our nation is a new Israel. That's great. Okay. We, we think that God will give blessings to his servants. And I've heard plenty of churches say that God doesn't will harm for anyone. But then we, we see verse 10, where it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And this is God's servant. We think of God as a genie who we can follow to grant us wishes, but that would mean that we know best, that it's our wishes that are for the ultimate benefit of ourselves. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for, the good, for those who love God, all things work together for good, and for those who are called according to his purpose. But is it our imagining that sets that purpose, or is it God's will? We can't forget who are the characters and who is the author of the story. So what story is is being told? Is God not promising us a conqueror? In the section prior, at the beginning of, of chapter 52, the prophet Isaiah writes about the return of the Lord to Zion, the redemption of Israel, the bearing of his holy arm. That all sure sounds like a conquering king that we are expecting. Well then, what about all the messiness in chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men. He was oppressed and afflicted. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This, is, this was really a confusing part to Jewish leadership. They had many reasonable guesses as to what this could be referring to. Possibly it was two people. Certainly you couldn't have the mighty hero in chapter 53 and the sacrifice talked about it, or sorry, the mighty hero in chapter 52 and the the sacrifice that we see in chapter 53. The text doesn't really read like it's two different individuals. It seems to be talking about one person. 
but it's a reasonable way that you could read this section. Some thought and maybe still think that this refers to the nation of, of Israel as a whole. That might make sense at a glance if you go into it with that in mind. If you go in with that answer, you might see that. Israel is God's people and could be a servant. The nation will be exalted. The nation has been marred. It has been smitten by God. All of that makes sense. But again, if we look at the passage fully, it brings up some weird questions. How could Israel be cut off out of the land of the living? Israel as an entire nation hasn't died. I don't think it can die. It says no violence and had been, that it had done no violence and no deceit was in its mouth. Israel had been guilty of plenty of violence, deceit up to this point, even on Isaiah. <clears throat> now, if, if we really look at this whole section, neither of these fit very well. It's like a puzzle piece that kind of squishes into place, but doesn't give that satisfying click. When you look closely, you realize the lines of the picture don't, don't match up. I can see how people might leave it there if they're unwilling to look for the right piece, but it just doesn't sit right. Even more curious are these lines of the passage that say, He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. With his wounds we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. You have to wonder, how can a nation bear sins for itself? How can a nation heal itself? This, these don't, don't sound like a nation. These don't sound like a king going to lead people into battle. Not a sword, but rather a shield. But Israel was sure that they knew what was promised, even if God had a different story planned to tell. Now, this is usually where, as a reader of the Bible, we kind of furrow our brow at the ancients and pat ourselves on the back because we already know the answer. What's more, we would have never been so foolish to make a mistake like they had made. Hindsight is very powerful, but it's also blinding. For those of you that know the answer that I'm getting at, you may think it was always obvious, but not so. We see that this was confusion throughout Jewish history, and even when the answer was in front of them. How often do you find yourselves changed by what the Bible has to say? How often do you go to the Bible to confirm your own beliefs? Do you search the internet until you find the right interpretation for an issue that you're curious about? I recently read a, uh, a conversation in a forum online where people were arguing that sex before marriage was okay. I wrote that and then I realized, well, that's not surprising, but what was weird is that they were arguing that sex before marriage is biblically okay. And you might think to yourself, well, that's foolish. No, the Bible talks all about it. Or maybe you think they're right. I don't know. Um, I have not pulled this church on, on this topic, surprisingly. <laughs> Their logic wasn't too bad. I, I, read through, I read through it, and they had, you know, they had some interesting points. 
they reference uh, that, that typically this argument stems from the Ten Commandments. And they say, no, 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 the Ten Commandments says adultery is bad. However, you cannot commit adultery if you're not married. You go, oh, okay, um, I, guess, I guess you got that. And they say, no, 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 the Bible definitely condemns adultery. But it doesn't talk about sex before marriage. If you, if you control F to find through the Bible the word sex before marriage, it, it doesn't bring anything up. Okay, um, I guess that's an interesting way to interpret the Bible. But it makes me wonder if, if these people have actually read the whole Bible, especially with this in mind, taking a look at what the Bible says as a whole about the matter. Or maybe they go in with their answer. Maybe they don't think too closely about a verse like, like Hebrews 13.4 that says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And again, it doesn't say anything specific, but you have to wonder why sexually immoral is listed in addition to adulterous. Or why 1 Corinthians 7.2 says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And why is sex with one's spouse the fix for sexual immorality if sex outside of marriage is okay as long as you're not married? Maybe asking some of these questions instead of going in with an answer. Or maybe they don't see the various other commands that God has about keeping the body pure and undefiled and how sex throughout the Bible is given as a gift to a husband and a wife. It can, even for us today, be really easy to ignore what the Bible is telling us and instead go in with our answers, to impose our interpretations over the text that don't quite sit right, that make us ignore certain verses or not, not look too closely at certain commandments. So let's not be too hasty to judge the, the Jewish rabbis of old. Instead, let's look at the hints that were given in 740 BC, before Christ, and ask again, what is the story that God is telling? He seems to be telling us about a conqueror, someone who will free Israel, but also someone who will be lowly, one who will be exalted, but one who will bear our grief. Israel expected a king to deliver God's people from their enemies, and that's what God did. But who are God's people? And what is the enemy? Israel moved further and further away from God's plan and never fully followed it. They feared nothing so much as they feared their neighbors conquering them. The Egypt and, and Assyria that were looming, that were always after what Israel had, Israel's people, Israel's land. But the enemy that God warned them about the most was not the countries to either side, but it was nothing other than sin itself. And while Israel was and still is God's chosen people, God created all peoples. He deserves praise from all nations. So it wasn't only Israel that was going to be saved, but all mankind, saved from sin itself. That's what we see in, in verse 10 in chapter 53, where it says, his soul makes an offering for guilt. In verse 6, 
saying, the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Our sins are laid on a hero whose death atones for the sins in a way that the ancient sacrifices couldn't match. He will bear our griefs, carry our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. His punishment was earned by us. Chapter 52, verse 15, reinforces this in a strange way when it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And that's maybe a verse that a lot of us would read past and and not even question. I wouldn't really blame you. We're in a lot of strange imagery here, especially in the thick of Isaiah. You'll read some strange imagery and, and maybe don't have the energy to look everything up. Maybe your Bible offers up a a reference in Leviticus. You think, yeah, that's okay. I'll just hop over in Leviticus, read a little Old Testament law. I'm sure it'll all make sense then. Or maybe you don't. Again, I wouldn't blame you a bit. So I'm I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit out of Leviticus. Chapter 4, verse 6, and again in in verse 16. When either an an individual of of Israel, which is verse 6, or the whole nation, verse 16, would sin... The way that a priest would cleanse them would be by dipping a finger in the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkling it in front of the sanctuary. That would be representative of of cleansing the sin from the sin offering. And additionally, in Exodus 24, when God promises the promised land to Israel, Moses offered sacrifices and sprinkled the blood on the people of Israel to confirm the covenant that they had with God. And so here we have the blood imagery being sprinkled as both a cleansing of sin and the establishment of a covenant, a promise with God. But here in Isaiah, the blood won't only be sprinkled on Israel as the covenant, but it's very explicit. The blood will be sprinkled on many nations. Again, if you come into this looking for a conqueror, looking for a sword, you might find it. But if you look closely, I think you find something different. What we begin to see, what we get hints at, is that maybe all of this law in Leviticus is not just arbitrary, but is part of God's story. Maybe God is giving something away here, that these rituals and these commands are actually a great bit of foreshadowing offered by the Creator in in order to point towards a greater narrative, that the Messiah, the Deliverer, is not coming to deliver us from the Egyptians and the Assyrians, but from a greater threat. So this Savior figure isn't coming to win a physical war, but a spiritual one. And so we need to look for that character. We take this, this bit of imagery of foreshadowing and let it raise our curiosity so we keep an eye out for that character. And after a 740-year wait, we get one. The New Testament opens with four gospel accounts. The word, the word gospel is, is used to translate this Greek phrase meaning good news, and so that's usually what we hear gospel referred to as, and, and, that's, and that is the correct way to refer to it. The gospel is the good news. What I think is, is really interesting is that 
the term came into English from an old English word, Godspell, which meant something more like God's story. So the, the Greek originally meant good news, but throughout church history, it's been thought of as a part of God's story. All four of these gospel accounts, these good news accounts, center around the life of Jesus, who is the Son of God. Jesus was sent to earth, as he says in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And you have to ask yourself, how can a law be fulfilled if it's just a law? The laws of, of our country don't really offer fulfillment. There's no purpose that our laws are waiting for. The laws of America, they just govern our day-to-day -day activities. They keep us in line. There's no promise to them. But Jesus came to fulfill the laws of Israel, which tells us that there is a purpose to those laws. If they offer fulfillment, the laws, like the prophecy, have been foreshadowing. Just like the prophecy in Isaiah points to someone who is coming to save, the laws highlighted Israel's impurity and need to be cleansed. Those laws highlight just how far humanity is from God's holiness to make sure that the we and our pride do not forget our place. Sometimes foreshadowing is done explicitly and told to the characters. Other times, foreshadowing is implicit. It just exists in the background until the story, until the time is right to make it clear. And the setup is made clear in the Gospels as we read about the life of Jesus. Starting in, in chapter 52, verse 14, it says, As many were astonished at you. Jesus, as a child of 12, was sitting among the teachers of the, of the temple asking them the questions. And it says he astonished his parents. As he began his ministry, crowds would be amazed because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Chapter 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And this was being written to the Jewish people. And so Isaiah warns the Jewish people that they will reject their own Messiah. And we see this in Jesus' life. Jesus rails against the new Jewish beliefs that had been defined in that 400-year period of silence where the prophets didn't hear anything. It had been defined by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish priests that had been creating all these rules. And when Jesus brought them correction, they rejected him. Chapter 53, verse 4 says, He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. We heard a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, about the, the introduction of, of grief and sorrow into our world in the beginning of Genesis, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and in, introduced sin into the world, it brought with it grief and sorrow. And since then, it has been grief and sorrow that stems from the root of sin. So in bearing our sin, 
Jesus bears our griefs and our sorrows. That same verse 4 continues, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, as if all of this pain and suffering were happening by his own wrongs, that, that this punishment came to him as something that he deserved, even though he didn't. And we see this when Jesus is brought before the high priests and is judged guilty, sentenced to be beaten and crucified for wrongs that he didn't commit. We can read about one of those trials before Jesus was crucified in, in Mark chapter 15. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked, asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. We see this foretold in chapter 53, verse 7. That he was, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We see so many instances of the pain that Jesus would endure at his crucifixion written about throughout chapter 53. In verse 14, it says, his appearance was so marred, or I'm sorry, 52 verse 14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Chapter 53 verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, which means being killed, stricken for the transgression of my people. Chapter 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. It's interesting that they mentioned pierced. We might not find that so strange because probably that happened all the time in ancient Israel when someone was killed, probably. I don't know. I don't really think about how people were killed in ancient Israel all that often. And this, this term wounds that it, that it has at the end of that verse is typically um, rendered as, as, slash, or as stripes in a lot of translations. Depending on which, which translation you might have, it, it might say stripes talks about slashes, usually cuts. Again, that might not sound so strange, but the typical method for execution in ancient Israel was a stoning. And that would definitely crush someone, but to pierce them and give them stripes, it's a strange way for Isaiah, 200 years before the first crucifixion occurred, to describe how someone would be killed wasn't really a method they used. This method of crucifixion involves being pierced in the hands and in the feet and begins with the flaying of whips, with whips, laying stripes all over the body. Chapter 53, verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And we see Jesus crucified alongside two robbers. 
But after he was killed, his tomb was then paid for by a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, and he was buried there. And as we see detail after detail in Isaiah lining up so perfectly with the life of Jesus, to me, it's impossible not to see that God was giving away the plot here. That here in Isaiah and many other places throughout the Old Testament, God gives us a a clear look at what's to come. Again, what we're reading is 740 years before Jesus is born. So we see God's vision at what his plan is for mankind and the future of the earth at his reasons for the laws and how he'll deliver his creation for the, from the corruption of sin. God is giving us foreshadowing on the greatest scale, one that we see occurring over the course of history. And so God sends Jesus as a conqueror of sin, not only to save Israel, but to save all of God's people, to sprinkle many nations in the blood that will truly cover our sins. He will, as, as we see in verse 11, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In Christianity, we use this, this big term, substitutionary atonement. It's this idea that sacrifice can cover sin. We see it throughout the Old Testament that a sacrifice offered will cover the sins of the people. It's what we see in Leviticus when, when the priest would dip his finger into the blood of the sacrifice and, and sprinkle it in front of the temple. But in the Old Testament, these sacrifices, they were temporary or passing. A new sacrifice every year or every time a, a sin of sufficient size was committed. But we needed something greater, something lasting, a way to be made right truly with God again. But what could do this? What sacrifice could be sufficient enough to forever forgive the sins of all mankind. No animal could be worth so much. No person could be worth so much. It's only through the death, the unearned judgment of not only a sinless human, but God himself, that such forgiveness could be made for mankind. But this is exactly what God did, not because of some cosmic error or some grand mistake God told us he was going to do this. He planned for it all along. He gives it away here in Isaiah. And by his everlasting love, he gives away grace to all. He gives away forgiveness to all that seek it out and believe it. Gives it away to all who repent of their sins and choose to live for Jesus. If you're here today and and you haven't already made that choice, I would encourage you to pray about it. Seek out answers. Come talk to me or one of the pastors here. God has given away this gift freely to anyone who would pick it up. For those that have accepted it, God has given us this forgiveness. He planned to 
regardless of, of what was anticipated by the Israelites of the day. And Jesus, being God, knew this would happen. He was in front of Pilate, knowing what was to come, knowing the penalty he faced, said nothing. He could have run, he could have hidden, he could have called angels down to protect him. He'd done a lot of miracles up to that point. Surely he could have escaped if he had wanted to. But instead, he went forward, knowing fully well the outcome of this moment of the story. That not only would he die a terrible death, but that his death would serve to save those that were condemning him. To save those very people who were mocking him, who were beating him, that they would be offered salvation in spite of their crimes against him. How then is it that we Christians let ourselves take revenge on anyone? That we badmouth anyone that does us wrong? Do we think it, it, genuinely, it genuinely offers correction? Or do we, in, in that moment, think that we are the righteousness of God made flesh on the earth, sent here to show those people their iniquities, was our pride injured by something they said? Were we mocked? Were we slighted by some action they took against us? Are we wounded? Christians, if we tell the world, we tell ourselves that our lives are marked by the following of Christ. Do we live that way? In this story, in our story, are we known for how we react to situations the same way that Christ did? Do we lay down our lives for those that mock us? For those that lie about us? Will our actions be, be shown to be for their good or for ours? Maybe they've brought judgment on themselves, but who among us hasn't? The Israelites of their day, they wanted a, a savior protect them from their neighboring nations. They wanted someone to smite their enemies, yet they were given someone smitten. They looked in the, in the text and they found two heroes, one who conquered and one who was conquered. But our hero laid down his life to claim the victory, to win the real war, not for some physical reward, nothing Nothing so petty, nothing so trivial as that. The war he won was for our souls, for God's kingdom, for God's glory. For that's the resolution of our story. That's where the plot always ends up. It's the glory of God achieved through the forgiveness of sins and the intercession of humanity. And it's to this glory that we characters should hope to contribute towards. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for all the information and thoughtful detail you've woven throughout history. You're a wise and just God. You are all-powerful and the author and creator of all things. We pray that you would help us see our place in history, that we would see the saving grace you have given us lowly people, 
that your grace is sufficient for our saving, for it is by your wounds that we are healed. We pray that you would help us to see the wonderful gift your grace, of your grace freely given. That would inspire our forgiveness and our mercy in our hearts. That we would see each and every person as a character right alongside us in your story. And that we would be inspired to action in the reflection of the hero that saved us all. That this prophecy from Isaiah some 2,700 years later would still point our minds toward your son and that our hearts would forever wonder at you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship. Mm -hmm.